I'm Jay Miller, and today on George Fox Talks, I'm going to be speaking with my colleague Dana Robinson about early Christians and food. It's an intellectual feast. Today we're in the studio with my colleague Dana Robinson. Dana is a, an assistant professor of history and theology here at George Fox University and is also my colleague in the honors program. So it's great to have Dana on the show to talk about her new book, Food, Virtue, and the Shaping of Early Christianity. Um, when Dana's talking about early Christianity, she's not talking about early Christians we might think about reading about in the New Testament per se, as much as Christianity as it's taking shape in a sort of post-Constantinian sort of world. So fourth century, Constantine has brought about making Christianity the official religion of the empire. Um, along with that, you have a sort of rise of monasticism as a sort of new attempt at seeking the highest forms of Christian piety, since martyrdom is off the table to a certain extent. Um, and so it's a really interesting generative time. And one of the things Dana's really interested in this period isn't just looking at elite Christian writers, elite monks, elite bishops, but asking what did it mean to be an ordinary Christian in this sort of fourth century Mediterranean sort of world? Um, and Dana, one of the ways you get at that sense of what does it mean to be an ordinary Christian is looking at food. And I just wanted to read a sentence here and have you maybe explain it for us so we know why food's so compelling for you. You say in your book, food is a vehicle of social differentiation, experiment, and controversy. Even more than what you eat, the key to your social and political identity lies in how, where, and with whom you eat. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're getting at in that sentence and why food's so compelling for you to thinking about ordinary early Christians? Yeah, I think this is something that we all have a kind of um, innate connection to, right? Because food is probably the most universal thing that there is for human beings, right? We all have to eat to stay alive. Every individual has to eat to stay alive. There's a biological necessity to that. So it's part of the common human experience that we need to do that. Um, but at the same time, food food is both intensely personal, right? You have kind of pre um, preferences that you develop in childhood, things that you remember, the way that the sensory experience of food is very meaningful to an individual. Um, but we don't, like, none of us eats food by, like, taking a capsule alone in a phone booth or something, right? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. And I suspect maybe never, we, we never really will, because there's something about the experience of eating together, the fact that we do, that cultures do develop different foods that different, that different cultures eat, that the way we, that we have rituals that surround our mealtimes, that it says something who mm. we, who we choose to eat with, how we choose to do it. Um, so there's something about food that not just kind of defines our identity as individuals, but also kind of creates, creates the kind of communities and sustains the kind of communities that we form in small and in large, mm -hmm. large form. So there's a there's a term in um, in anthropology that I really like that talks about food as embodied material culture. What that mm. means, it's kind of the only thing that's a product a product of culture, something that we make, um, but it's made in order to be destroyed and in order and to be destroyed by consuming and absorbing it into our own body. So mm. it gives you this very kind of personal embodied connection with 
the products of your culture and all kinds of other things. So what this means is when you look at food, you see biological necessity, you can look at agriculture, you look at politics, you look at gender, you look at class, you look at religion, because food crosses into all of those areas of culture because of these very deeply personal and very communal um, aspects that it has at the same time. Mm -hmm. One of the things you say in the book that I thought was interesting is that even though um, broadly you're looking at different sites throughout the Mediterranean world, you do sort of posit that there's a relatively shared Mediterranean food culture. Um, could you talk about the food culture of the early Christian world you're looking at and maybe specifically how um, food is sociopolitical in that period? Like what might that look like, the politics of food in the Roman Empire at this time? Yeah, so first of all, there's um, the sort of Mediterranean diet yeah. is in a sense – there's a very general sense of this where it's dependent on the agriculture of the, of the region, mm -hmm. um, which around the Mediterranean is going to be a lot of grain, wheat, barley, wine. Um, what's the other thing? I'm drawing a blank on the other thing. Anyway, there's three things. I can't remember the other one. Olives. Olives. There you go. <laughs> I'm seeing the map in my head of where the line is of, of the olive, yeah. you know, cultivation. <laughs> um so those are kind of commodities. Those yeah. are kind of the central commodities. Almost Wheat is almost like the oil of the Roman world. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have a wheat shortage somewhere, you have to get it there from somewhere else. And there's mm -hmm. kind of an expectation that the government is going to do that. Mm -hmm. Or is that that's part of the responsibility mm -hmm. of, of government to sort of subsidize and provide, yeah. provide the grain for people. And right. there will be riots if it's not provided. And yeah. like, so the sort of food instability is very real for people because of the changing climate and all kinds of other things. Um, so there's a certain amount of food instability and expectation that there's going to be some amount of subsidy being provided. But you also have a world where um, I think maybe because of food insecurity, on the flip side of that, the conspicuous consumption of food by the wealthy is something that's very, mm -hmm. very prominent, maybe mm -hmm. even more so than it is today, that one of the ways that the wealthy show their wealth is by dining extravagantly. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's also a sense for these elite um, wealthy Romans broadly speaking, in the empire, that the way that rich people network with each other is by these dinner parties that they have at home. So there's mm. this idea where if you were rich, you could afford to have like a cook and a fancy dining room mm -hmm. and you could throw dinners at home. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were poor and you lived in an apartment tenement building, you you didn't necessarily even have your own kitchen. You would eat out at like a, a the tavern on the corner where you could get some lentil stew. Mm. So there's a very much of this like Dining at home and having your kind of political colleagues and the people you wanted to network with dinner at your house mm -hmm. was something that was very much the province of the wealthy and very much a kind of political networking environment, mm -hmm. whereas the poor are going to be much more likely to like eat in a tavern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is the world, the social kind of political food culture that early Christians um, in the fourth century are working in, living in, participating in. And it was interesting when I first first started learning about your work, even before I read your book, and once I read the book or started the book, I thought, well, certainly if she's talking about um, food culture and Christians, surely in this period she's going to be talking about the Eucharist, you know, this kind of ritual Christian meal. Mm -hmm. um, and actually you make a point of saying I'm looking a lot further beyond that. Could you say a little bit why this study didn't take you into maybe looking at the Eucharist as much as the broader food culture and practices of early Christians? Yeah, that's that was something that surprised me as well. I thought when I went into this that the Eucharist was going to be much more prominent in sort of the ordinary person's life. Um, and I think this is partly um, 
partly a product of the particular moment in Christian history that I was looking at, because by the time you get to the fourth century, the, the Eucharist has developed into a liturgical ritual that's not necessarily part of an ordinary meal at home anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? That development has kind of already happened. Um, and there's actually a sense in which church leaders and, and priests and bishops are very concerned about protecting the sanctity of the Eucharist and making sure nobody gets it mixed up with an ordinary meal. Mm-hmm. So they're very concerned about, oh, nobody should be having the Eucharist at home, even though they probably are. Mm-hmm. It should be this very protected because it's sacred and we want to protect this ritual. And so they make a big point of how it's not like an ordinary meal. It's not like any other mm. ordinary meal that you would have. Um, so what this does in a, in a weird sort of way is that by it's, it's detached the Eucharist from all your ordinary meal environments. And what that does, I found, is that it opens up the ordinary meal environment again for new forms of theological reflection and mm. um, kind of thinking about what does it mean? If it's not what the Eucharist is about, what is it? Uh, so that's where I found that the meal practices of Christians and the food practices of Christians outside of the Eucharist were very, very generative for them mm-hmm. in terms of community formation and moral formation mm-hmm. that had very little to do with the Eucharist specifically and had much more to do with this common um, kind of Mediterranean culture of of food and moral formation and politics and wealth and the ethics of food and all these kinds of things. Yeah, I I think that's a good opportunity to get into a little bit more concretely what you look at in the book. You have this great sentence, I think, relates what we're saying of you open by saying for John Chrysostom, who's a major early Christian thinker, um, the most important meal in his daily life of his congregation is not the Eucharist, but rather the ordinary domestic supper. Can you tell us a little bit about how, what, um, your analysis, who Chrysostom is broadly, and then, um, what sort of you find innovative about the way he's talking about food for ordinary Christians? Yeah. So John, John Chrysostom is a a priest in the city of Antioch, which is was part of Syria at that time, is now actually part of Turkey, um, where it was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. And he was a priest there. He was later the Bishop of Constantinople, and he's famous for his sermons. Mm-hmm. Um, we have hundreds of his sermons that survive. He was a great kind of biblical expository preacher as well as a kind of a moral preacher. Golden Mouth, Golden is one Mouth, of his nicknames. yes, is that right? Yes, yeah. because he's such a great. He was such a great preacher and mm-hmm. orator. So. We have hundreds of his sermons, which are a really great resource for trying to learn about ordinary Christians because these are, they're still coming from the perspective of an educated, relatively wealthy person, but he's speaking to a a congregation, right? And kind of saying things to them that he thinks they need to hear. So there's a lot of really interesting details in his sermons about social life, Mm -hmm. the social life in Antioch. Um, So one of he he's very very concerned across the board with the sort of daily habits and daily practices of of people in his congregation he wants them to have every aspect of their life reflect their christian identity mm-hmm. um so he he pays a lot of attention to what they're doing all the time and meals are a big part of that and because i think a lot of the times he is preaching to this to a wealthier audience and he's he spends a lot of time giving them instructions about like what you should do when you have a dinner party He's really concerned about this excessive spending, about this kind of conspicuous mm-hmm. consumption. You know, you shouldn't be spending all this money on your dinner party. You should be spending it. You should be giving it to the poor, for instance. Or, um, But when he does that, it's a little bit less about, um, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit more radical, I think, than it would be to a modern Christian to say, you know, you should invite the poor to your dinner party or something mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. Because for in, in this world, this is really 
where the political elites interact with each other is at these domestic banquets. Um, so to say you shouldn't invite people you want to impress, you should invite the poor is really kind of radically upsetting this, um, I guess, political and social world mm -hmm. that his rich congregants are participating in. Yeah. It, um, it seems to me that kind of touches on a bigger question you're looking at your study is when, as Christianity is becoming more mainstream, more established in a certain way, more official, um, it seems like one of the things you're really interested in is to what extent it's appropriating and taking on this kind of already established pre-existing sort of Roman pagan culture, however we want to think about it. To what extent is it taking that on or to what extent is it sort of pushing that away and distinct distinguishing itself? So different examples in your book do different things. Would you say for Chris, um, Chrysostom that he's a thinker who's drawing, he's trying to draw firmer distinctions between Christian food culture and Roman food culture? I think he is. Um, I think he is because he's trying to say that Christians are going to hold their banquets in radically different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I think on another level, he isn't because he's still accepting this idea that the meal is a sort of um, social performance. Mm. He's just saying the kind of social mm. performance you should be having there is one where you're performing true virtue by not just trying to impress, but trying to have real kind of meaningful relationships with the people who are there. Mm -hmm. Instead of having, instead of having secular entertainers, you should, you know, read the Bible at mm -hmm. your dinner party, this mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it still depends on the kind of the structure of the dinner party. He just mm -hmm. wants to kind of shift around the players mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And I don't think you get this in the book, but it's a question I have. Are you able, well, maybe you do get at it. You have a case study of like one wealthy person. We kind of have a case study of how Christosmum might've been thinking concretely about how the rich should dine. But do we have a sense at all of how Chris, um, Chrysostom's audience might have received his teaching and put that into practice? Or is that just kind of inaccessible to us? Um, so many it's centuries It's very removed. hard to, because we have, it's it's kind of a one-sided conversation, right? We have all the things that he says. Yeah. And we don't really have anything that his audience wrote. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is helpful to get at that is to sometimes think about the metaphors that he uses mm -hmm. um, in the sermons. Um, because mm -hmm. metaphors are the kind of thing that aren't just kind of linguistic decorations. They actually structure the way we think about things by saying that one, we understand one thing in terms of another thing. And there has to be a kind of shared common understanding in order for that to make sense. Um, so for instance, when this, this is going away from the dining rooms a little bit, but when Chrysostom talks a lot about moderation mm -hmm. and uses metaphors regarding health, mm -hmm. there's this idea that health requires a balance of the humors in your body and it, de it depends on eating the right things. Yeah. Right. Not eating, not eating too much, not eating too little. That's going to be very personalized to the individual. Um, but there's a sense where you have to have a kind of shared understanding of what that means. And so you, we can kind of speculate a little bit about how those metaphors would have landed for people who had mm -hmm. this certain kind of mindset of understanding what, what medicine was like, or what, again, what dining practices yeah. were like. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about John Chrysostom and his desire to delineate carefully, even if he doesn't have control over his parish, between the Roman food culture and what Christian food culture like, looks like. You talk about another early Christian writer in your study named Paulinus, who is a little more creative, I think it's fair to say, in his use of language around food culture. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us more about who Paulinus was and what about his 
rhetoric has been helpful for you in thinking about the questions you're interested in? Yeah, uh, Paulinus was one of these super rich people in the late Roman Empire who got kind of renowned. He was kind of a celebrity convert for Christianity because mm. he decided to give up to renounce all of his wealth, which was a lot. Yeah. Um, hmm. So he got he got a lot of attention for deciding to devote himself to a more aesthetic form of Christianity. He gave up all his wealth, and he also felt a very deep connection to um, a saint named Felix who had been mm. martyred in the... Um, third century, I think. Did you say where this century. was? Um, he's in Italy. Yes. Italy. He's like okay. south of Rome. I okay. think he's from Gaul originally, but this is south of okay. south of Rome where he's located in, in Italy. Okay. Um, and so he devotes the rest of his life to the shrine of Felix and is sort of promoting the veneration of Felix at, at this shrine hmm. in the Roman uh, Italian countryside. Uh, and what that means is he kind of lives an ascetic life there and he, there's every year there's a festival on Felix's martyrdom or his, de his day of his death, which is celebrated as his his day, um, where people come to this festival from all over the place to, to remember Felix and venerate him. And Paulinus, who's also very, very highly educated, writes poetry every year. He writes this public poetry to be, to be sort of declaimed mm. on the day of Felix's festival um, in honor of Felix. Mm. He does this for like 15 years. Wow. Um, Do we so, have all of his poems yeah, for that? Wow. Yeah. So it's really, it's a really interesting, there's a, they're not sermons, but they're sort of public poems because mm -hmm. he writes them in the, in the very kind of uh, highfalutin, late Roman style, but yeah. a little bit dumbed down for a popular audience right, yeah. to be able to listen to. Um, so he he gives all these um, he gives all these these poems every year, and a lot of them have as part of the poem he tells a story about somebody who had an interaction with Felix that mm -hmm. gives some kind of. Um, some kind of honor to the saint and mm -hmm. then through the saint to God. And so he tells these, there's these great stories. And so he, one of my favorite ones that he tells is a story about um, a guy who lives in the, in the countryside, just an ordinary guy who um, he's in, he's in trouble. I can't remember why, but for some reason he decides he, he wants to thank Felix for something that Felix did for him. And so he makes a vow that he's going to bring a, um, bring a pig and sacrifice it to Felix. Mm. On the on Felix or sacrifice it to Felix at the shrine mm -hmm. on Felix's day, and then he comes and he sacrifices it and he gives he kills it at the shrine and he gives a little bit of the meat and then he packs up all the rest of the meat to go, and goes home, but he doesn't get more than a couple miles away before he like freezes in some kind of weird paralysis and falls off his. This is all the story that he's telling. Yeah. Right? He falls off his donkey and he can't move and he's like, "What happened?" And then he realized what had happened was that he did his sacrifice wrong. Mm. He was he wasn't supposed to take any of the meat home. Um, he, so he goes back to the shrine of Felix and is like, oh, I realized I'm supposed to give all the meat to feed the poor here. Mm. And, and then I can go and then, and then Felix frees him from his paralysis and he goes on. And there's a couple of more stories along those lines, yeah. um, which are really, they're funny. I mean, like they're really funny stories. One of them really yeah. literally involves a flying pig, um, and these kinds of things. But the interesting thing about it, when the first thing, when I first read that, what startled me about that is I think we're accustomed to think about sacrifice as being like the one practice that Christians don't do, mm -hmm. right? That's the one that they, they kind of define themselves against the most. Yeah. As um, opposed to right? we don't Roman do culture, Romans, not just Romans, but also, also Jews. Yes. Yeah. Offering animal sacrifices. And they're like, no, Christians don't do animal sacrifices. And this yeah. seems to like complicate that in an interesting yeah. way yeah. Um, that he seems to be describing something that looks an awful lot like, animal sacrifices yeah. mm -hmm. and the idea that you have to do it correctly and mm -hmm. you have to do this whole thing. And not just describing it, but celebrating it yeah. in this kind of oh, yeah. huge 
public poem. Right, right. Which suggests a couple of really interesting things. Um, first of all, suggests that ordinary people in the Italian countryside still think of this, don't think of this as incompatible with Christianity, mm-hmm. right? That they could, the, these are the kinds of traditional practices that people have been doing since time immemorial, I guess, um, yeah. right? That you have this kind of relationship with a divine being where if they help you, you make a promise that you're going to give them something. They help you, you give them the gift and gratitude and this kind of reciprocal exchange relationship continues. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to be the sort of thing that's continuing with Christians. And then for Paulinus to write this poem about it and be like, yeah, there's there's a sense in which there's space in Christianity for this. He doesn't seem anxious about it at mm-hmm. all, right? Um I mean, arguably part of the thing that makes it okay is that he doesn't, it's not, it, well, it is. I was about to say it's not a sacrifice, but it is because he brings it, he kills it ritually in front of the door, yeah. right? As a vow, as as the fulfillment of a vow to Felix. But the thing that makes it okay, apparently, is that you're feeding the meat to the poor. Mm. So, and and Augustine says a few things along this line too. Like, it's okay to have these kinds of like, ritual meals mm-hmm. as long as you're feeding the poor with it and not just like feasting. Yeah. There's kind of like an ethical mm-hmm. legitimation mm-hmm. or the, the end or the purpose of it is what legitimates it or makes it acceptable. Yeah. 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 So, so that's really interesting. And I, Paulinus might be a little bit of an outlier in, in his kind of comfort level with that, Yeah, with that practice, but it certainly suggests that there's a lot of space for Christians to be kind of engaging in traditional practices yeah. But just kind of redirecting them towards towards God and towards the saints. Yeah, you mentioned sacrifice a little bit in talking about Paulinus, and it's a big issue in this period in your own study. Could you unpack that a little bit more, why sacrifice is so significant and how you're maybe in this study trying to shift the way we think about sacrifice um, for early Christians in relationship to the mm-hmm. Roman Empire? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is part of, I think, the way that, we tend ordinarily to think about sacrifice and this is the product of sort of religious studies of the 19th century, Mm. um, thinking about it. And there was this strong kind of emphasis in religious studies at that time to think about what's important about sacrifice is that it's, it's bloodshed. Mm. Right. And there's all these different theories about, Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's abstract, it's ritual violence or it's, it's creating a scapegoat or it's a a kind of blood has to be shed in order for atonement to be possible. Mm -hmm. All these kinds of theological readings of sacrifice. Um, and what I, what I, what I'm finding and what some more current studies on Roman religion in particular is suggesting is that that might be a little bit of an overreading of the significance of blood sacrifice. Mm. That in fact, the kind of system, what we could call the system of sacrifice was really a much broader system of sort of gift exchange between people and the gods that you're kind of like. That's what you right. call votive religion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's the idea that, which, which comes from the word for vows. Okay. Right? So it's the idea of like. The gods do something for you. You promise to do something for them. Yeah, they do something for you. It's just kind of like ex- con- a, a relationship based on exchange. Yeah. Which, um, I, again, I, I think we tend to think of as transactional in a negative way. But if mm-hmm. you think of any other kind of social interactions or social relationships that you have, there's a certain kind of expectation of reciprocity, right? Like your grandmother gives you a present, so you send her a thank you note, sure. right? And, and that's yeah. not like that's not negative. That's just the way relationships work, right? Um, so there's a sense where we should actually be thinking about Roman religion and sacrifice in a, in that much broader context. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot more sense of what we see people doing. And it kind mm-hmm. of, 
makes the blood sacrifice part a little bit less significant mm -hmm. and a little less prominent. And I found that, that that actually helps with understanding a lot of what's going on in early Christianity too, that there's this whole idea that the way you relate to divine beings is through a system of social exchange. And you do for divine beings anything that you would do for a person that you are that you have a relationship with. Mm -hmm. um, and you could call some of that sacrifice, but you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole broad range of practices that are open for... I think you, you use the word assimilation mm -hmm. or for just for creative repurposing yeah. um, that people are doing. Yeah. Um, and if we're too narrowly focused on like sacrifice as bloodshed or on yeah. what's Christian versus what's pagan, we kind of miss yeah. out on the kind of creative assimilation that's happening. Yeah. Or only for only focused on the Eucharistic ritual. Yeah. Um, I think a word you also use in say is like the diffusion of sort of Christian piety out beyond just like the liturgical piety, but the broader sort of maybe more votive pieties you're picking up on. Could you just say really quickly, we don't have to get in depth, but like what are some examples of early Christian sort of votive kind of practices that are more about that reciprocality and giving and less about the sacrifice? Mm -hmm. um, well, there are a lot of um, – Objects like we find, we'll find objects at churches and at shrines, which also is a, is a continuation of a of a traditional practice where maybe a little um, like a little plaque mm -hmm. with some eyes on it, and then you know, thank you God for helping me, kind of yeah, kind of mm. stuff. Yeah. Um, and you would you would bring that and you would give it at the shrine, or yeah. you would. Um, I'm trying to think of of something else. Um, a lot of that kind of thing, small objects that could be that could be offered. You might light a lamp at your doorway oh. um, at nighttime. Yeah. Uh, you might before before a meal, you might actually do something like pouring out a little bit of the wine or something like that, which wouldn't mm. be Eucharistic, but would be a kind of like thanks offering. Sure. Um, those are the examples that come come to mind off the top of my head. Yeah, those mind. all make sense. It reminds me of a really, I think, a beautiful sentence you close your um, analysis of Polinus with. Um, you say, Christian sacrifice is not just death, martyrdom, and ascetic renunciation. It's also a joyful crowd, tears of repentance, kisses of supplication, a candle, a garland, a beloved farm animal, a vote of graffito, a poem, a meal. And, and this quote raises for me a question that I, I've just started to think about as we're talking, actually, of to what extent are the practices of the early Christians you're looking at around food reminiscent of an ancient sort of Roman culture? Um, or to what extent are they more kind of looking forward to what we think of as this medieval piety? It's very much about devotion, reverence, almost semi-enchanted sort of objects. Um, it's sort of a question of periodization. I wonder if you could talk with us about to what extent is what you're looking at ancient versus to what extent is it looking forward to the medieval period? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think what is the most interesting to me about this period, the kind of fourth, fifth century is that's when that moment is happening, right? That's when we're kind of yeah. starting to see that transition from what in the fourth century is real, really still very much an ancient and Roman world, but there's enough change happening that's going to start moving in the direction of, of the middle ages. Um, I think, I think for me, there's a sense in the fourth century still of creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, not that there isn't in the medieval period. I don't want the medievalists to hate me, mm -hmm. but um, <laughs> every period has its own, has its own creativity. But I think there's still something for me very powerful in the fourth, fifth century. Um, 
that there's been a lot of standardization in sort of institutional Christianity, but it's not all the way there. Yeah. There's mm. still a kind of, um, there's still a kind of sense that we're making it up mm-hmm. and that what ordinary people do is still going to play into that to some extent. Um, and that kind of creative repurposing of traditions is still very much in play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's always in play, right? There's always going to be, there's always some distance between what the institutional church is saying and what people do mm-hmm. in their life. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing I've been pushing back against a little bit is a sense that one of those is more Christian than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what people do in their understanding of Christianity is just as important as what theologians say. And that the interchange between those two things is what pushes Christianity to develop in the ways that it does. Periodization questions are always kind of more like thought experiments than Mm -hmm. actual, like, is this medieval or is this ancient? (laughs) Um, But I think it it makes sense what you're saying of what's compelling about this period um, is that something of a hinge, Mm -hmm. right? And, and in those kind of hinge or transitional periods of history, um, you do maybe have a certain kind of creativity where, um, you know, the kind of old forms are still existence and the new ones haven't quite locked into place or sort of congealed. This isn't what you're interested in is not just recovering, though, beautiful practice, beautiful practices, nice little pieties. But you're also interested in ethics and politics. So I'm just curious, what are the broader takeaways for you um, in terms of ethics and politics of food from your study? And maybe how, you know, how does that make you think about these sort of questions today, even though we're so far removed from kind of imperial, like the Roman Empire? Yeah, I, as a a historian, I'm sort of allergic to people trying to make comparisons to ancient Rome, because it's usually... Yeah. Not very helpful. Um, (laughs) But a couple of areas where I do find myself going back to again and again, as I try to think about what is it, what does it mean to live a sort of life of ethical interaction with food and with other people today? I think one of the things where the the late Roman world is really similar to ours is in the wealth gap. Mm -hmm. There's that very kind of, there's the very rich and there's everybody else. And there's, there's an increasing gap between those things. And that's definitely true in the late Roman world. And we see Christians thinking about that a lot, Mm -hmm. um, being very concerned about that. And so I think part of what like, for instance, Chrysostom is getting at with the dining room stuff is that you shouldn't be, if you are one of these wealthier people, you shouldn't be isolating yourself in a world of other wealthier people. Mm-hmm. You know, you should be thinking about maybe you need to give away all your wealth. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to um, not just, I don't think about it so much as giving away all my wealth because I'm not in the 1%, but I still have enough I could think about, mm-hmm. you know, I have enough to make me uncomfortable with having it. Um, and so I tend to think about that. And one one thing I think is really concrete about that is do we only dine with people who are like us? Mm-hmm. Like we don't have the yeah. same kind of political environment where for most of us, our, our dinner parties are about political schmoozing. Right. But there's still a sense where we have parties with people that we want to impress and people who are like us. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, to what extent do we, you have to work kind of hard to get outside your bubble and associate with people who aren't like you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one area that I feel really challenged from, from some of this work. And that a lot of that it, it takes place around food, right? That, yeah the people you eat with mm-hmm. uh, says something important about who your people are. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the other thing I think a lot about is, is kind of in terms, again, in terms of conspicuous consumption and that looks different now, but I think about, um, uh, e- even 
a lot of the conversation about the ethics of food, right, is about um, sourcing and ethical food production and are we buying the meat that's been ethically produced and all of this mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, and I think that that's important, but I've become increasingly increasingly concerned that that in itself is another form of conspicuous consumption because mm -hmm. that kind of meat is so expensive because it takes so much kind of effort sure. and expenditure to um, eat that way. And I, I understand that I'm concerned about the environmental elements of it, of course, yeah. but I, I think I'm also concerned about the extent to which that's still something that's only within the reach of the reasonably wealthy. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder sometimes if there wouldn't be more or another way to think about a Christian ethics of food would be trying to eat in a more, in a way that would be more in solidarity with the poor. Yeah. Like maybe I need to just eat the way the poor eat in order to have more to give mm -hmm. or something like this, that I, that I don't need to be isolating myself with these kinds of very expensive practices, if that makes sense. For sure. Yeah. I think it's totally valid to kind of look at how going to a farmer's market and buying your organic food and dropping it in a chic tote bag <laughs> and walking home is kind of more of a consumer choice than something that's actually reconfiguring our political system mm -hmm. and that our course whole political economy around food. And I also think it's worth asking, even though I'm really, I myself has been influenced by a lot of, um, you know, kind of local sustainable food kind of thinking, but I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, we have a huge population on earth and we need to think about like producing food for the masses, you know, and I kind of, in some ways that takes me back to your study because you're interested very much in like what's piety and what's eating look like for the masses and not just for the elite. And I think you capture really well how, even though it's filtered through an elite lens, just how, you know, kind of elite Christians themselves are having to think about that problem of not everyone's going to become a monk, um, or um, some other hyper-aesthetic kind of um, role. So thank you so much for taking us into that world and having us look at it through food and ordinariness and the lives with lay Christians. Thank you. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.